Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. Usually I'm joined by my co-host Dean, but right now we're doing something a little bit different and uh, you're stuck with me for a minute. This past summer has been marked by police violence and repression. Among many incidents, the police shootings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Jacob Blake stick out in particular. And in response to this police violence, activists across the country have taken to the streets to demand justice for these shootings. In Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Jonah and Cameron Overton, the pastors of Zao MKE Church, have taken to playing an important role in the Milwaukee protests. Zao MKE has transformed part of their church into what's become known as the depot, or what basically is a big supply hub for ongoing protests in the area. For the most part, playing this role in their local protests has been important work happening quietly in the background. But after the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, the wrong people took notice of their work. Working with Kenosha protesters, Zao MKE packed up supplies into a U-Haul and sent it off to the folks marching in the streets who really needed it. Before the supplies ever reached their destination, a combination of local police and federal agents confiscated around $1,000 worth of food, water, and medical supplies, and COVID-19 masks. Overall, what happened at Zao MKE in Milwaukee is a highlight of what Christians on the left can do to aid ongoing struggles for social justice. It's a good example. But it also shows what you're up against when you do that kind of work. So rather than another episode on the Christian left from the perspective of what people are saying on Twitter, here's an interview with pastors Jonah and Cameron Overton at Zao MKE in Milwaukee with a perspective of what Christian social justice looks like when it's on the streets. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm the lead pastor of Zao MKE Church uh, and the original church planter of this um, kind of young and budding community. My name is Cameron. Um, I use he, him, his pronouns, and I'm the worship pastor at Zao MKE Church. Um, I came on a little later um, after I met Jonah and uh, have never wanted to turn back since. Zao is is like a, a church plant uh, that started just a few years ago in my living room. And we've been growing over the last few years. The original mission was to basically build church for people who had a lot of really good reasons not to go to existing churches. Um, in particular, folks who were um, who felt alienated or burned by the church, people who were um, radically committed to justice and felt that the church uh, was failing in that way um, or, or didn't provide them enough spaces to do that. And so we built a church with, with a bunch of queer and trans and radical people in Milwaukee. And it's been fascinating to see how church takes different shape when folks like that are leading from the very beginning. That's great. Thank you. So I think as most people know in the, in the world right now that there have been um, a lot of protests going on in Kenosha, Wisconsin, because of the police shooting of Jacob Blake. And y'all aren't too far and are kind of involved in those protests. Um, so do you want to do you want to maybe explain some of Zhao's connections to the, the protests in Kenosha and then like maybe the larger social justice uh, aspects of the church in general? So the, when the protests began, um, things got really intense in the streets in Milwaukee very quickly. We have a really great history of radical protest uh, in our city. And there's this historic march that went on for 200 days for housing, housing rights and housing integration. Um, and so we have that, that history kind of propelling a lot of street activists. And uh, so people were really fired up um, in this moment to, um, to build on that historic legacy and express the real needs of our community here and now, specific to Milwaukee, but also 
in in this moment. Um, so things ramped up pretty quick. And as we saw across the country, the police were starting to use militarized tactics to um, to counter those protests in ways that were really frightening and had some pretty um, pretty terrible impact. So people were being cordoned into different parts of the city and the cops were putting down, um, what are they called? To slash people's tires. The Cameron, do you know what like I'm talking about? Like tire strips, you know, spike strips. Spike strips, thank you. Yeah, so they were putting spike strips. The cops were laying spike strips all over the city to keep people from being able to go home and then pushing them into smaller and smaller portions of the city. We had been involved in the protests during, you know, our entire existence. We've been out in the streets. And actually, on the first day that the Milwaukee protests took the highway, I was at that protest. Um, And I, you know, I started live streaming when I saw the direction we were headed. And I was like, y'all, I think we're taking the highway. And so I got to be in this kind of groundswell moment in the streets of Milwaukee as the protests took a new kind of energy and, and vision uh, and and blocked the highway, which hadn't happened in the previous four years that I'd lived in the city, even though I'd been to a number of protests. So we knew it was a special moment and we had been in the streets. Um, and but we weren't we weren't always in the streets at night when things were getting really militarized and scary. And one night we were um, there's just a few days into the protests. Cameron and I were at home and uh, watching on all these live streams. And seeing that the way that the protests were getting pushed, it was getting pushed right into the area of our church building. And so we saw them take a turn down our street. And as they're walking by the building, we were like, it is unconscionable (laughs) that we are not there in this moment with our doors open. And this kind of gets to, you know, the role of church in sanctuary. Um, I'm actually collaborating with the Institute for Christian Socialism about a statement uh, to, to write a statement on sanctuary as they're as we're like exploring these different aspects of what kind of sanctuary the church can provide to movements during during these street protests and uprisings. Um, but we we went hard on that right away. We were like, how can we make this place available? What does that mean? And right away, there was a need for safe houses. People were getting stranded, and so people needed safe places to go. And so right away, our leadership, we got them on a call the next morning, approved by that afternoon, staffed, I think, by that night, saying the church is open 24-7, available as sanctuary to any protester who needs refuge. And we were trying to keep that kind of like low-key and separate, um, you know, so that it wouldn't become a targeted place. It was a genuine safe house. But as the word got out through networks, we realized that there was actually a greater need, which was a, a centralization for what had become a supply chain for the protests. A lot of people were collecting and distributing supplies, but they were doing so from their lawns, from their garages, from their living rooms, and people were getting overloaded. There was also this kind of diffuse energy where, you know, it was a few houses across a few different neighborhoods. And so people wanted to collaborate and condense those efforts. So people started just bringing their supplies to the church and saying, hey, we have overflow. Can we put this here? 
And then overflow became actually, can we just run the whole operation out of here? And then that became, oh, we'd like to actually take on these other houses that have been on the supply chain and incorporate them here. The sandwich making effort that was going on at the local community bar wants to move into the kitchen and on and on and on. And so that grew really rapidly into um, what is known locally as the depot. So the depot, which is housed in our church, is the largest supply drop and distribution center uh, for for support for protesters um, that we know of in the area. And we we had a um, our building is massive. There's a gym with like a regulation basketball court in it. And it just became completely dedicated to this project. At one end was Water Mountain, um, which grew and shrank uh, as supplies came in and out. But we had, you know, thousands of cases of water, um, Gatorade and um, other kind of like salty snacks. We were hearing from folks that we really needed to manage their electrolytes um, during the long, hot days of marching. And then just food in general. People were making incredible meals and donating them through the church. And so we became like this hub. Um, and then other resources started coming in, first aid materials, um, wheelchairs and pop-up tents and things like that. And so we we were able to interface with this. And my own history as somebody who's been in the streets, um, I had never been on this side of it before, where we were really uh, this behind the scenes function that allowed people to be spontaneous, people to get the things that they needed, people to allow people differently to plan ahead, but to say, like, what does it mean for us to be in the streets? How can we be sustained? How can I be sustained this afternoon with a bag of Doritos? But also, how can the movement be sustained over time with a consistent flow of um, of support? And so that was our role. And we were like way in the background for for months. Um, Cameron, do you have anything that you know, you want to add to that about our relationship to the protests? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that you mentioned was um, some of the local Milwaukee organizers said, we want to march for 200 days um, in in thinking of the history of Milwaukee. And so I think part of what we ended up having to do is collaborate with organizers, collaborate with um, all sorts of people who are saying, how can we sustain uh, the local organizers that are saying we want to march for 200 days. I also want to mention that all of this came up um, with the with the George Floyd situation. Um, and so all that Joan is explaining is kind of pre Kenosha. Um, and so that's how we ended up in in the fight is, you know, supplying supplying everybody in the streets. So when when Kenosha hit that's that's where kind of the the story that I'm sure you wanted to get to uh, gets to. But I just wanted to mention that that's this is like by via George Floyd. So, yeah, it's helpful contextualization that I mean, <laughs> this the summer has been long. <laughs> I forgot. Um, that's really helpful to, to hear um, before we kind of move on to the to the story at hand, I guess. Um, I think it's really interesting that you you all were able to kind of like switch so quick from uh, from church mode to uh, <laughs> to supply chain. I think that's really cool. How did the uh, how did the rest of the folks in your church take it? Like, uh, were they excited? Were they was was anyone having any misgivings about it? I don't know. I've been with I've been around church people. I know how they can be. Um, what was it like for you all? 
<laughs> yeah. So this is the beauty of church plants. We, you know, we haven't been around that long and our, the, the flexibility that we have from being new is an enormous asset. It's a huge liability too, because like no systems are established and everything. But, you know, we went from being in my living room on Wednesday nights doing Electio Divina practice to being in a theater on Sunday mornings a couple times a month, um, launching a worship service at like an, a venue that normally hosts EDM, uh, EDM shows and other like, like insane clown posse was there one Saturday night <laughs> and we were there the next morning for church. And then, then we finally weaseled our way into this big historic Methodist church building. And so now we have like all of our art draped over this like ridiculously expensive organ that we're not using. So, uh, you know, being, being a church plant, being a ministry that has um, a spirit of life and experiment and growth really gave us an advantage to figure out how to pivot towards what we needed. So like I mentioned, when Cameron and I had started to discern this, we called our core leadership in the morning, had like got approval of that day. And it was like, what do we need to do to set this in motion? And I don't think we really got significant pushback from a single community member. No, I think uh, there are some people in our church that hold things down. Uh, they are mainly older than I. Uh, and so they were the people that I remember being like, oh, boy, all right, we have to go to this group, too, because, um, like, we have, like, a leadership team, um, and then we have kind of a, a, a get-it-all-done committee, and the, the get-it-done committee was the, the people who I was like, oh, they're going to have all the questions, you know? And so I remember like pacing back and forth being like, all right, here we go. And even that group, like we sat down and we were like, this is what we're, this is what the leadership wants to do. And they were like, okay, here's the three things that need to happen. How do we do this today so we can get this running? So there, yeah, I, there wasn't a single person who, you know, didn't, didn't want to do what we set out to do because that's our core values. You know, I think, Jonah hasn't mentioned, but like we're Jesus rooted, justice centered and radically inclusive. And I think that anyone who is showing up to Zhao knows that that's our values. And anyone who's, you know, really a part of of Zhao uh, is trying to figure out how to live out those values every single day. And so this was something that I think most people were like, yeah, this is a no brainer. We're we're going for it. That's great. Well, it definitely speaks to the types of formation. Um y'all are doing at your church that this is such an easy move. I like that a lot. Um, okay. So all of this protest stuff is happening. You guys are really kind of rooted within the the protest movement. You're, you're the depot in the church and you're giving people their good salty snacks and their, and their water. And that's awesome. Um, but it sounds like things uh, got a little bit more complicated um, earlier last week. I think it was, or at the very beginning of September, you all released a press release about a situation between Zhao and the police. Um, and, uh, it seems like a pretty interesting situation. So I don't know, in your own words, how would you explain what happened? Yeah. So as I mentioned, and Cameron clarified, we had been doing this work. We've been doing the work of, of protest and being in the streets since our inception. We had been doing this specific work of, uh, of the depot since the beginning of June. And 
we were really clear on our mission. We are here to provide humanitarian or kind of in church of your terms, good Samaritan support to people who we believe are doing prophetic work in the streets. So, you know, that's water, Gatorade, salty snacks. It also uh, expanded. We were working with medics and um, there was a medic training at the church and the street medics are incredible people who mostly, again, run around managing people's electrolytes, making sure everybody's hydrated. Um, but they started saying like, yeah, we could use some first aid kits and basic um, medical support as well. And so that was the project. And that was uncontroversial for months and months and months. And then when Jacob Blake was shot uh, repeatedly in front of his children and Kenosha became this very specific locus of energy in the Black Lives Matter movement. A lot of energy converged in that space and um, and law enforcement just ramped up to 11. They were just doing they were we were hearing reports of the police doing really egregious things. Our medics, the medics that we were in relationship with, the community members that we had met through all of this work were telling us things like, yeah, the other night two medics were on the ground and we were tending to somebody who had been injured and the police rolled up on us and we threw our hands up and we said, medic, 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 medic. And they acknowledged us, opened their tear gas canister, threw it at us and the injured person and rolled off. Um, We also, um, you know, there were reports of tires getting mysteriously slashed right before the cops were giving the orders to go home or you'd get tear gassed and hit with rubber bullets. And so the police are just escalating, escalating, escalating. We are just still here over here doing our same water and salt and band-aids operation. And, um, and, and the way that works is it's all like, we have our little hub, the depot, and we make it known through community channels. If you have needs, come here and we will offer you supplies. So we're not the ones um, necessarily like on the ground distributing anything. And so some community members heard about what was available, came, shopped. It's actually quite a fun experience, um, the, the shopping bit. It reminds me a lot of when I was at Standing Rock. There was kind of a similar gift economy. Um, I've heard similar stories from various parts of the Occupy movement. But basically, like people come in, we tour them through and they say, like, well, what can I take? And we say anything that you need. And it's wild because like when we tell people, you know, like when people first come in, they 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 have this kind of like, what's the most I can get kind of energy? What's the most I can get away with taking? But as soon as we tell them, like, no, this is all for you and we want you to take whatever you need. This is all freely given to the community to support the prophetic work that's when they start to kind of back off and be a little more cautious. And then they are really careful about only taking what they need so that things are there for other community members. Um, It's, and it's a beautiful, different, it's a different kind of economy um, and a little glimpse into how things could be, but that is a, another tangent. Um, In any case, on a Wednesday, a couple community members came, they were new. We had never met them. We toured them through the depot um, and they said, well, we uh, we want to bring a lot of things. 
we're from Kenosha, we want to bring a lot of things. So we brought a U-Haul. So we were like, all right, well, you know, things have been pretty wild the last 48 hours. So we're a little depleted, actually. But here's 80 cases of water. Here's some Gatorade. Um, we give them a ton of salty snacks, a couple of megaphones. Uh, I think there was a box of like band-aids and gauze, kind of just a single box of first aid stuff. And we blessed them and sent them on their way as other people came in and picked up other things. And we didn't really think twice about it. And then later that night, uh, we saw some pictures kind of blow up on Twitter of a U-Haul that we recognized that had been rammed by the police um, and and basically stolen, um, like carjacked, kind of. It was wild. They um, and we saw in the picture, Cameron recognized that there a little distant figure in cuffs in the picture was the driver that he had met that afternoon. So we were like, wow, we know where this came from, which means we know at least what we put in that U-Haul and that it was water and Gatorade. Um, and this seems really egregious. Now, it actually seemed in line with a lot of the things the cops were doing. So we weren't surprised. But we still thought it was really egregious behavior. And we thought that people might care more if they knew exactly what was in there and that it was coming from a church. And so that was when we decided to publicize it. Um, what some folks may not be aware of is that that same evening, they actually came after another vehicle um, that was not affiliated um, with anybody that we would not affiliated with us. Um, and not affiliated with that U-Haul, like they didn't know each other. But like that same night, they had similarly um, kind of carjacked another group of people. And it was caught on camera. Um, the the U.S. Marshals and the local cops converged on this van. And you can find videos of this. And they smashed the windows in, dragged the the passengers out. And then you can see as an agent gets in the car and drives the car away. I mean, it really it's it's just it seems like people are getting robbed by the cops. And so we, we decided to, to share this out and just bring some attention to it, um, because these are the kinds of actions that the local law enforcement are taking in reaction to, um, you know, just people expressing their First Amendment right to protest. Um, and our relationship to it is is just that, like, we can highlight that this is this is water, this is band-aids um, that they are they're confiscating and stealing and harassing people about, um, and we just thought that that was a really revealing story about the relationship to law enforcement um, and and the protesters down here. So, can you guys tell me a little bit more about um, why you chose to kind of frame it the way that you did? You said that you you know you you wanted to make sure people knew that it was. Um, it was, you know, it's basically humanitarian aid from a church. Like what, uh, what do you think that, like, what do you think publicizing that part of the story does for the story? Like what, what is that trying to communicate to people? Do you think? I think there's a generally understood agreement in our country that religious communities providing basic humanitarian aid to people who need it is a good thing that we want to support. And I think that a lot of the folks who are on the fence about about the protests and about law enforcement 
um, who kind of see all angles and see merit on all sides would be really shocked to learn that law enforcement is behaving in this way towards a church in particular. There are some folks, there are some folks for whom it doesn't matter. And I think it shouldn't matter that it's coming from a church. But there are enough people in our communities who feel strongly that if the church is handing out water, that that should be treated as a neutral, respectable, you know, off limits kind of activity. And to see the police um, coming in and interfering with that is really egregious. Some people have been seeing photos and videos of police slashing water bottles. Um, you know, all summer and for years. But I think that, you know, not everybody knows about these behaviors. And and some people are really um, shocked to learn them. And I think that people have the right to know. And I think that it, it does impact how people are thinking about this. And I think the other thing that's really important about this story was that a day before um, police were handing out water to Kyle Rittenhouse, who shot and killed two people. Um, and I, I think that that's really important contrast to then the day after when I was talking to these, you know, community members who are picking up these supplies, part of what they're saying is like, we have to make sure my community is safe because the police aren't doing it. They allowed this 17 year old with an assault rifle to come over um, into Wisconsin and kill people. And so, like, the least I can do is get water and Gatorade and potentially some medical supplies to the streets um, so that we can be safe. And so I think, you know, I think that that is a really critical piece uh, to be talking about where the police were literally and you, there's videos all over of, you know, them throwing water to this kid with an assault rifle saying, thanks for being here. Um, we appreciate your presence. And then the next day, they're taking that exact water away from people who are doing that peacefully and uh, not with an assault rifle, not with the thought and malice of wanting to actually kill someone. Yeah, man. Um, when you put it that way, it sounds very bad. Um, you know, blatant anti-human um, anti-human behavior on the one hand, um, you know, uh, depriving people of water and supplies and then on the other hand aiding people who are you know literally going to murder protesters it, it it tells you a little bit about the character of the protests um well i, I guess i'm a little bit more interested in that um like the the sort of religious nature of handing out these supplies um and i guess i want to frame the question along some pretty partisan lines and, and you guys can tell me what you think but um like right right-wing christians evangelical christians have this like very conspiratorial narrative about um, the role of churches and the state, right? The, even though um, the evangelicals, the right-wing Christians, they're the ones who are, you know, they hold a lot of political power at the moment. They still think of themselves as like heavily persecuted parts of the population. Um, and, and I, and that's like, you know, obviously bizarre because it's, you know, made up it's conspiratorial, I think for a reason. Um, but I think what's interesting is that you all have actually kind of lived through a type of persecution on religious grounds, but in a maybe far different way. Um, but I don't know. Do, do you all think of it as that type of thing? Is it is it uh, is this a sense of like 
Is it a sense where you feel like your religious expression has been prohibited or has been squashed because of police repression? Or do you think about this in an entirely different way? And that's just a weird tangent that I have. Yeah, I mean, so for what it's worth, I actually consider myself a leftist evangelical Christian. Um, And so some of those things I'm deeply familiar with. And the paranoia of especially conservative evangelicalism in the United States is just like really out of touch with reality. Um, But I do resonate with the idea that if you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. And we teach that actually a lot at Zao. I think that's one of the reasons, you know, Cameron talked earlier about how like people didn't object to this because it's so deeply in line with our values. It's also, um, as you mentioned, it's, it's part of our discipleship. Our invitation into discipleship is to follow Jesus in these really practical and tangible ways. And what we teach is that following Jesus is following Jesus directly into conflict, conflict with empire, however that manifests. And empire and imperialism, however they manifest and however you define them, uh, are, are persecutorial. <laughs> And um, and will will pressure you and coerce you in every way imaginable. I mean, that's what it does just on a Tuesday. Imagine on a Tuesday when you're pushing back. And so I think, you know, I don't think of it as necessarily. I think the, the conversation in America is a lot about like. Religious liberties or religious rights in kind of a legal sense. And I don't think of it that way at all, because as Christians, we have enormous privilege. But as believers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are called into a kind of pushback, a kind of resistance, a kind of uh, conflict that will make powerful people and institutions and, you know, the, the powers and principalities really, really angry. And I think that we the idea about persecution is that we need to be prepared for that backlash, um, prepared for the backlash of the systems that want to maintain themselves as we want to dismantle them. Systems of, you know, the evils of white supremacy, but also the basic systems of of empire and imperialism. And so I think that, like, for me, seeing this play out is seeing the empire say, bad Christians, this is not you're supposed to be on our side. We co-opted you. You're supposed to uphold. You're supposed to fly your flag. You're supposed to, you know, pledge to to the flag as your God. And you're not supposed to do this. Um, And and that's why it's been really interesting. A ton of the hate mail we've been getting because we've been getting a lot. But a ton of the hate mail we've been getting has been telling us that we're not a real church. Um, we're actually on Sunday about to launch uh, a new sermon series called Hate Mail. We're just going to do a sermon series based on the bad theology in a lot of the hate mail we've been getting. Uh, and we're going to start with this concept of like, what's a real church? Uh, and we're going to talk over the course of the series about American imperial religion and how the the church in the United States has been cultured to be a church of empire. And so when you actually follow Jesus, you defy that expectation and the empire, you know, 
strikes back as it were. Uh, that's cool. Um, t- tell me more about this hate mail. I, I want to know about it. Um, is this, is this from other Christian like churches in Wisconsin and Milwaukee is it just from randos or, uh, what, what's going on there? Everywhere, everywhere. It's coming from everywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, like we're getting phone calls from Texas. We're getting uh, Facebook comments from people whose profiles say they live in Alabama. I got an actual honest to God pen to paper hate mail letter from New York State. Um, so it's it's pouring in. And uh, yeah, it it astounds me the kind of energy that people, people are putting into it, but what would you, what do you most want to know about it? Well, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wondering like, um, yeah, why aren't you a real church? Why are they, what's their problem? <laughs> is it about, is it about like, um, like who you're like the practices of your church particularly, or is it about like the, the role in protests? It's about all of it. What's going on there? All of it. I mean, like no one's very specific. Trolls uh, tend not to be like, you know, precise, or terribly articulate, right? It's just loud. There's a lot of all caps. Um, there's a lot of profanity uh, and a lot of threats that we're going to burn in hell. Um, but I think that we've been talking about this a lot the last week or so, especially as we've been preparing for this series, actually. And it just feels like folks have been cultured by American empire to expect religion and religious spaces, especially Christianity, to uphold patriotism and nationalism as like a fixture within within the religious space. And so like anything that offends, you know, good God-fearing Americans, so to speak, is evidence that we are false prophets, that we are not a real church, that we are secretly a terrorist organization, you know, that we're, you know, and people are like, we're reporting you, you're going to have your 501c3 status taken away. Um, just like all like these crazy things. And it's, it led us to a conversation about like, what is a real church? Is, is our real churchness even defined by those civic markers that you want to threaten to take away from us? Would we cease to be a real church if, if for some reason we didn't have like tax exempt status? Or like, is church a different way of being and doing community? You know what I mean? So so we've had to ask these questions ourselves because we're like, well, you know, here we are trying to be the church. And the very actions that we have felt called into as a body following the teachings of Jesus have brought people who call themselves Christians to our doorstep in one way or another, shouting that we're not real. And so I think that there is this um, cultural battle for religious legitimacy. And those folks are looking to the empire and to the country and to the legal system to arbitrate who is a real church. And we're trying to look to Jesus. Well, and I think, I mean, to also be a little more simple is, you know, I think evangelical white Christian culture has become empire because they're building upon white supremacy. And part of the part of what happens there is that a lot of people get oppressed, right? And we are a church that looks like all of the people who are oppressed. So, you know, 
they're all mad and being trolls and sending hate mail because we are saying Black Lives Matter. And they have a problem with that because that doesn't include them. Um, and then they find out not only do we love black people, <laughs> as everyone should, we also are trans and queer. And so now all of a sudden, you know, we're getting a bunch of hate because of that. And of course, you know, trans people and queer people cannot be in church. Um, and then they find out that we have a, a solid stance on on immigration. And so now all of a sudden we're getting hate mail about that. Right now. Now we're, you know, people who want to destroy the nuclear family who just don't even care about the USA and and don't care about all people. Right. Um, and so I think simply we we represent at Zao the exact people that, you know, evangelical white Christians would not want in their churches. And that's why we exist. Um, and that's why I think we're getting all of all of the hate. This morning, we were joking about uh, the headline that Michelle Bachman says that black trans socialists, Marxists, Marxists yeah. are like coming for for everybody. And I just looked over at Cameron, who is black and trans and a socialist and was like. They they found out Michelle Bachman <laughs> found out. I was like, how did she know? know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what she thinks people are doing. Something about Switzerland. It's so absurd. But like that is like like black trans radical leftist is now the boogeyman. And that's like that's who one of our pastors is. Um, you know, so I think that, that some of this really is identity and it's it's wild how quickly it shifted. Um, because we're a very openly LGBTQ community both Cameron and I are trans we're every you know everybody's queer um like our whole community is at least a little queer um thinking about it but um it's amazing how quickly the hate mail that was pouring in about how we're you know uh, a racist church or a Marxist terrorist organization which is obviously about the support for the Black Lives Matter movement that shifted really quickly um, to hate around sexuality and gender and not just like my transgender identity, but people coming for me, like perceiving me to be a woman and then telling me like that, 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 that was the reason that I shouldn't be allowed to open my mouth. And I was like, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. I'm like, you got to get my gender right before you can gender discriminate against me properly trolls. But, um, you know, this is the layers, the layers we are actually our, our very being, um, this is why they say existence is resistance for some of us, that our very being is threatening to what many folks perceive the church to be. One of the comments was, if if there was a church like this in every city, American Christianity would be dead in 50 years. And we were like, depending on what you mean, Mark, if only, <laughs> you know, if only. Yeah, for sure. Well, per personally, uh, personally, I'm very glad that you both are out here after everybody in the United States. I'm really, really excited about that, actually. Um, that's cool. So something that sticks out to me about you all and the, the sort of ministry that you do is that it is, um, I mean, really focused on activism. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, I think, I don't know, I, I've gone to some pretty rad churches in my time, but um, not many of them are committed to really like being in the streets like you all. Um, yeah, I don't know what 
what's the what's the secret sauce there? How do you uh, how do you get your church to move into the street? How do you um, how do you kind of spur this type of like activist moment for your congregation? Yeah, thanks. I, I think some of it is consistency with our teachings and our values and our expectations for one another. So Cameron mentioned that we are a Jesus rooted, justice centered, radically inclusive community. Those are words that we say every time we gather. Um, and we actually explain them. Like every service we have, we have an MC who introduces the community and talks through their own perspective on what it means to be rooted in Jesus, what it means to center our community around practices of justice as an expression of our Jesus rootedness, and then how that kind of culminates into a radical inclusion. And so part of it is saying our values must be lived and looking for opportunities. But I think that there are a lot of churches who have really great values um, who look around for opportunities and feel like they come up empty, uh, like like they wish they could do the kinds of things that we do, for instance, and they they just kind of scratch their heads. And I think that part of what we need to do as a big C church is start to learn collectively to get our hands a little dirtier. In our recent history in American Christianity, we are so used to people coming to the church with needs. We're so used to being a hub where everything gets decided and mediated that when people aren't coming directly to us, we're like, well, we would help if you would ask, but we don't know where to begin. And with at Zao, we really just kind of flip the script on that. And part of that is like my original being a pastor's second vocation for me. My first job um, all through my 20s was a, as a community organizer. So I have some background in this, and I recognize that the the privilege of my training and my years in the streets um, in Chicago actually prepared me for this. But the the core of this work is relationship. It's making sure you're in relationship beyond the the people who are in your pews or in your worship community, um, but you're actually in relationship with the folks who are impacting the world around you. And if you're not, that you are diligent about seeking them out. So uh, when we were seeing stuff go down um, and we were like, hey, what are the needs? We already had some people that we could ask, but we didn't we knew that we needed to be introduced to the new leadership that was emerging because it was emerging and it was new and we didn't know them yet. So I was like, all right, I'm hopping on signal. I'm putting you know feelers out to my secular leftists. You know, Cameron, can you like talk to some of the more involved black churches? What are, you know, where, and we just put feelers out everywhere. What is the need? Where is the need? Um, and we found people we trusted. We found people who were doing the work. We, we built relationships of trust by making ourselves available to them and going to them and saying, here's what we have. And what we said we had was a sanctuary and a safe space. And people said, great, that's not that useful. Here's a thing that would be better. And we pivoted on a dime. And that's what we did was we said, hey, we have all these resources. Like, how can we put them at the disposal of the streets? And that was not without risk. And I know, you know, we've talked already about how some congregations have um, additional barriers that we don't have in terms of like, decision making and traditions and just trying to move in a new direction quickly. But one of the barriers that I think we all have is just kind of a general sense of risk. We, for instance, because we're a little church plant, we don't own the building that we're in. 
our denomination does. And our denomination does not have a uniform opinion about basically anything. So, <laughs> so we, we had to have like a little come to Jesus ourselves about the amount of risk we were taking on and doing this. And we could have very easily said, well, we really just can't put this building on the line because if we start to do this and the conference doesn't like it, they'll kick us out of our building. And that would be a really deadly blow to our budding ministry. We could have said that. And we said some of those words out loud just to kick them around, see how they felt. But what actually drove us into action was a, a belief. This is where you're going to hear my little evangelical heart coming out. A belief and trust in God's provision that God had brought us into that building for a reason and we wanted to utilize it. And so if we were brought into that building for a season, if only to lose it by doing good work with it, better to lose everything we had by acting faithfully with it than than to keep it through our timid um, inability to be bold. So so that's you know, I think there's kind of a mixture there of courage and prayerfulness um kind of an open-handed spirit of generosity to say our things our belongings our resources our time it's for something and those that something is beyond our walls always um and just kind of that core of relationships to say we know who to go to to find out what the needs are and we don't expect them to come to us the way that you all have uh chosen like a risky expression of your vocation over like safety is really powerful. Um, something that, you know, a lot of people have a hard time doing and I mean, rightfully so it's a, a terrifying thing to do, but um, it's great to hear about. It's a, it's a good word for sure. Um, well, just to guess a final question before we, we wrap it up. Um, is there a way that uh, folks outside of Milwaukee, outside of Wisconsin can, um, can help support the work y'all are doing? Is there anything, any way we can, you know, drive support to you all yeah i mean so luckily uh this this pesky little pandemic has put everybody online all the time so our our church which started in a living room and then went to that edm venue and then went to that big old you know um classic church building is now on the internet um so for anybody who wants to um explore what it means to do church differently and to kind of operationalized discipleship um, in this in this way. Um, you can always check out and participate in our community at Zao, um, Zao MKE, uh, where our handle is always at Zao MKE for Instagram and Twitter. And um, we're most active on Facebook. Um, so I think, you know, just following what we're up to, certainly we take um, we take donations and that's why the way that a lot of people from across the country have poured their support into the work is by funneling us resources that we can turn into Doritos and Gatorade and whatever else might be needed. Um, and if any of your listeners are praying people like cover us in prayer, cover in prayer, all the folks who are on the front lines. I mean, like doing the prophetic work of the streets right now, we are seeing, um, how taxing it is and how valuable it is to the world and, and the fruits that are coming from that real spiritual labor. And so I just really want to encourage folks to like actually take seriously, if you are people who pray, like take seriously a practice of praying for um, anybody that's in the streets um, or, you know, covering yourself and your loved ones in prayer if you are in the streets. 
as well. Anything I'm missing, Cameron? I think the the thing that I would say also is just amplifying the stories. So like first, thank you for having us here because I think this is the exact kind of thing that needs to happen. Um, There are stories after stories after stories of stuff like this happening. And if we're not amplifying it, uh, it continues to be kind of put underneath the rug and nobody talks about it, even though you kind of hear little glimmers of, of maybe the police did something wrong, right? So I think amplifying voices that, that are trustworthy and that, um, that are out there doing good, I think that's super important. Uh, um, and, you know, just for shout outs of, of Zao would be cool too, of like amplifying what we're doing. Um, I think that's always helpful and, and we, we will try to do our best to continue to do that as well. Um, well, thank you so much for uh, coming on on the Magnificast, uh, Jonah and Cameron. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so uh, go ahead and follow them on Twitter at uh, Zao MKE and other places too. They're at Zao MKE everywhere, right? That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> We're most active on on Facebook. One of our one of our youths is about to get us on oh, TikTok. Boy. So, oh boy, look out for us there. <laughs> so, like, we're open to you know, if people have questions or whatever, you know, hit up our DM. We'll we love we love to talk to people um, about this work. All right, that's great. You you heard it here, folks. Uh, hit them up on TikTok. Slide in their DMs. Go to their church on Facebook. You can do it. You can do it all here. I don't wanna get up for church in the morning. Church in the morning. Souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind.